0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Monday, October 31st. When we last spoke on Friday, the attack on Paul Pelosi had just been reported and we did not discuss it on Friday's show because we didn't know enough. Didn't know enough for it to be a topic of real conversation. Just a news story with attacker and motive still unknown. Anything we would have said would have been mere speculation. Could have been a random burglary or whatever else. But now we know. The suspect said, "Where's Nancy?" As he encountered her husband, Paul and that his social media profile appears to fit an increasingly troubling, violent extremist trend in this country. Here's a one-minute clip from today's morning edition. Many of you probably did not hear this. It last aired in the 7 o'clock hour uh, of Michael Jensen, a University of Maryland terrorism expert who was asked about the suspect, David DePape.
0: Well, what we know from his posting behavior is that he really, um, you know, symbolizes this mix of ideological commitments. So we know that he was posting conspiracy theories about the election, about COVID-19, um, but that he was also posting uh, anti-Semitic statements on the platform or white supremacist statements on various platforms. So he was really mixing these extreme ideologies that apparently motivated his behavior. But I think the you know the more important thing to recognize about this individual. Um, is that this is happening within the context of a tremendous increase in threats being made against public officials and our elected representatives so the fbi has been warning since the 2020 election that they are seeing more and more of these cases of individuals threatening um, not only the highest ranking elected representatives and public officials but very low level ones school board members health board members local representatives
1: Michael Jensen, a University of Maryland terrorism expert on today's NPR Morning Edition. One question, as Paul Pelosi recovers, will this become a voting issue for more people in the midterm elections? Will it make the threats to democracy and public safety from domestic terrorism more salient in the mix of issues people are choosing to vote on. With us now, New York Times national political correspondent Lisa Lair, no relation, different spelling. She covers campaigns, elections, and political power, and Washington Post columnist Philip Bump, who focuses largely on the numbers behind politics. Thanks for coming on today. Welcome back to WNYC, Lisa and Philip.
2: Thanks for having Thank
1: me. Lisa, you're following the midterm campaigns generally. Where do you see domestic terrorism fitting in before this weekend to the mix of what's driving people to the polls, especially in swing states and swing district elections?
2: Well, I'm I'm not sure it's going to be top of mind uh, for many voters, but I do think it plays into Democrats will sort of use it to play into the argument that they've been making, which is that uh, the Republican Party has gotten too extreme, that sort of this MAGA Republicanism is out of step with where... Uh, Americans are, and that they're sort of stoking these kind kind of violent, uh, violent political rhetoric. I mean, this is something that's been going on uh, for quite some time, you know, since before January 6th and afterwards. I actually looked up because I had written a piece um, about sort of Republicans embracing violent rhetoric. And I looked up the other day after this happened uh, with uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband to see when it was written, and it was written about a year ago. Um, So this is something that's been sort of well-known for a while. So I'm not sure it's going to sway too many voters. uh, Republicans, of course, this weekend were out there uh, largely saying, tying the attack to a larger crime wave that they see as happening across the country, which, of course, is, you know, part of one of their main arguments in these midterm elections. So they're trying to use this to say, you know, look how much crime is out there. And it's even come to Nancy Pelosi's house, which isn't quite accurate. This is a really specific kind of um, violent attack that really is tied to our political discourse right now.
1: Yeah, and Philip, the description by the terrorism expert in that clip of not just the suspect, David DePape, but the national context of many more threats against local officials down to school board and, of course, election workers. We did a separate segment on that last week. In the era of the big lie, how much does it move independents who may decide control of Congress potentially?
3: I mean, honestly, it seems like a cop-out, but I think that's the big question, right? I mean, we see that a lot of Americans express to pollsters that they're concerned about the state of democracy, and obviously that takes all sorts of different forms. It takes the form of concern about uh, the validity of elections, about election results being treated. It takes the form of uh, threats to uh, the political actors, uh, such as you described, but it also takes the form among Republicans of people thinking that elect- elections can't be trusted because they believed this, this these uh, false claims about the security of elections. So we see... See that there is this broad sense that democracy is under attack but part of the challenge is that people don't agree on what that means they don't agree on what it means that democracy is under attack uh so independents tend to vote with one party or the other and my suspicion is that independents who tend to vote with democrats see the threats of democracy as being things like this and that independents who tend to vote with republicans tend to see it as being that elections can't be trusted anymore right and that of course <laughs> all that is is just a rearticulation of the existing divide that is the, the core of the problem anyway
1: Yeah. Lisa, Donald Trump himself and some other prominent Republicans on the right have remained silent on the attack on Paul Pelosi. Trump uh, did tweet his, uh, or I guess it's not tweet, but he did post his concern for the family, the family of rock star Jerry Lee Lewis, who died the other day, but nothing regarding the Pelosi family. And you had an article recently called Trumpism beyond Trump. That was before the attack. But what was the premise, and does this varied set of responses, like House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy saying nothing until asked a day later by a reporter, which was different than the Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, who came right out and said this is horrific and unacceptable. So there's, there's a difference between how McConnell responded and the House, uh, the House Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy responded. That, does this fit in somehow to the Trumpism beyond Trump narrative?
2: Well, some of this depends on who the politicians are speaking to, right? Like the composition of the House. Kevin McCarthy wants to be the next Speaker of the House. It looks like Republicans will take control of that chamber. They only need to get five seats to do so, which seems in this political climate and based on what we're seeing, this sort of late breaking time seems pretty achievable. Um, And he's dealing with a caucus. In order to win that position, he needs to win over um, some members of the Republican party who are, who are much more, you know, further to the right. And uh, McConnell is a really different dynamic in the Senate. So I think some of this has to do with talking to their base and what we know about the Republican base is about a third of Republicans um, and an even higher percentage. When you're looking at people who, you know, say that they most trust, you know, far right news sources, uh, that group believes that true patriots uh, you know, may have to adopt violence to sort of save the country. Kind of uh, what 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 Philip was talking about that um, you know that democracy is under attack. And if you really believe that democracy un- is under attack, it's not a far leap to to say that you have to you know adopt some kind of violent rhetoric or even violent itself to save it. And so that's a that's a belief that has some traction in the Republican base. So if you were a politician who your political career and your political advancement depends on really cultivating that base, then probably you're going to be a lot quieter about this attack. This is not, uh, this is, you know, even this moment where political posturing should not be happening, this is, of course, politics, and people are thinking about it in terms of the lens of politics rather than, you know, the lens of violence and, um, you know, sort of national security.
1: Philip, you had an article the other day, Twitter is a skirmish... In the rights war on the media and quote elites, and of course the um, the news hook here is Elon Musk taking over officially at Twitter, and it was a pretty interesting moment for him to take over um, and appoint what has reported uh, been reported to be a content moderation board. Uh, just as we were learning about this, David DePape. And his social media profile and the connections, uh, once again, you know, between networks of people who support domestic violent extremism. Uh, So what's the what do you think is the Twitter now being owned by Elon Musk who wants to restore Donald Trump's Twitter feed and all of that? Um, What's the intersection here?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that people underestimate the extent to which, and this started definitely with the Donald Trump era, actually started with the Tea Party, but people underestimate the extent to which American politics has shifted from a red versus blue lens to an increasingly uh, quote-unquote elites versus normal people lens, right? And so this is something we see amplified really heavily by people like Tucker Carlson, Blake Masters is running for Senate in Arizona. We see this group of people that really are trying to not necessarily beat Democrats, but beat the liberal elites that they think control everything, people in the media, people in academia, people in, in the entertainment industry. Uh, and, you know, obviously there are lots of overlap there with other dubious things like QAnon and things like that. But there has been for quite some time a focus on this. And, you know, part of it deals with the fact that uh, politics is increasingly fragmented along educational lines, with more educated voters tending to be more Democratic, uh, less educated voters tending to be more Republican. Uh, But so what Twitter really represents to a large extent is, yes, Elon Musk is buying the thing. Yes, he says he's doing it for these free speech reasons. But the reason he's being championed is because it's really seen as a victory by these anti-elite, again, always when I say elite, putting that in quotes, these anti-elite forces which are trying to disrupt or dismantle these power structures that they see. And so Twitter is an unusually active place for the media, as I think everyone on this conversation can, can attest. Uh, but, you know, and for influencers and entertaining people, like Twitter is a very specific place for the elites, as these people would posit, uh, to gather and talk. And that Elon Musk has taken it over it isn't just about Elon Musk. It isn't just about this, these concepts of free speech that are overblown, but it is really about this broader battle uh, that, that, to a large extent, and in many places, has supplanted the red versus blue dichotomy.
1: Let's take a phone call. M.A. in Englewood. You're on WNYC. Hello, M.A.
3: Yes, good morning,
0: Brian. I have a question, um, and is with the attack on uh, um, Pelosi, might it affect um, the thoughts of independent voters on, and sway them more towards the Democratic Party, thinking that parts of the Republican Party have become too extreme. And yeah. I'll be happy to receive the question on, off air.
1: Thank you. And, and, and we touched on a question very similar to that earlier. But Lisa, do you want to run with the caller's question?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I do think there are concerns about democracy in this election. It shows up in polls. You know, the two parties do not agree on what those concerns are, but that is not the top concern. The top concern uh, this entire race has really maintained has been the same, which is the economy and inflation. Uh, Abortion sort of after uh, the Dobbs decision that uh, got rid of Roe shot up in the rankings a little bit. People more people said it was a dominant thing in their vote. Uh, It's fallen down a little bit, although I think that's really state by state in states where abortion rights are literally on the ballot. Places like Michigan, where there's uh, a referendum, you know, to put it in the state constitution. uh, It's more of an issue in states like Connecticut or New York, where abortion rights seem safe. It's less of an issue. But the dominant issue in this race is economic concerns, whether that's gas prices, whether that's high inflation, whether that's fear of a recession and also. Uh, beyond that, you know, structurally, this is a really hard election uh, for Democrats to win. Historically, the the party in power in the White House loses these midterms. I think the last president not to lose seats for his party not to lose seats in the midterms was George W. Bush in 2002. So uh, for Democrats to um really to keep control they They have to over defy decades of political history. And on top of that, the headwinds are really strong against the party. Uh, you know, these economic headwinds, concerns about crime. So even if the people, you know, look at this attack, which is quite uh, horrible and they say, okay, I'm concerned about the state of our democracy. I think the voters who would say that are probably already primed to be voting Democratic. I'm not sure, given everything else that's going on in people's lives right now, that this is the thing that's going to sway a large number of people. But, you know, this elections, close elections are decided on the margins. So we'll just have to wait and see. Things can be this is a really tight race, particularly in the Senate. And, you know, in this final week, things can be a little unpredictable.
1: Rebecca in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Rebecca.
2: Hi, Brian. Uh, third time caller, long time listener, sustaining member. Thank you so much. I just my concern is where is the outrage? Where are the alarms? This was a I mean, this guy broke into the house saying, where's Nancy? This was an assassination attempt on the second in line for the president. It didn't even make the top of the fold in the New York ta- Times. Like what is going on? This is not a both sides issue. This is an assassination attempt. I I just don't understand. Democracy is at stake. I understand that people have differing views on things, but this is a huge deal, and I don't see it being made a big deal in the media, and it's really scary.
1: Rebecca, thank you very much. Um, Philip, I don't know where it sits in the uh, print edition of The Washington Post. I, I, I think the media is making a big deal of this. But you can give me your impression. But the, you know, I think there's a difference that maybe is getting lost between something like the guy who attacked Lee Zeldin, the Republican candidate for governor of New York in upstate New York uh, a number of weeks ago, who even Zeldin wrote off as a guy who was having mental health problems. And so, you know, That was an isolated incident, as even Zeldin described it. And this, which is part of this network of domestic violent extremists who do want to commit political assassinations or even lean towards civil war. There's a difference there, right? And that needs to be made clear in the media.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I I think there are a couple of factors at play here. First is that it took a while to learn details of what happened in the Pelosi attack. And the problem that happens every time when we have these things occur is that either there are slightly erroneous early reports or it takes a while to get the truth out there. And very quickly, that space is filled with all sorts of theories and so on and so forth. And and frames are set in politics. And this is not to say what the media is doing, but rather to say that a lot of the conversation around this is now driven by this total nonsense and garbage that's out there about what allegedly happened including being promoted by Elon Musk on Twitter, right? So, so part of the challenge here is that the media is always disadvantaged in seeking truth because we have to wait often to see what the truth is before we can actually articulate what it is to, to, to readers or viewers or listeners, right? right. So, so, so that's one issue by itself. The, the other issue here is, you're right, is that there is always, when there is an incident like this, there tends to be a pattern in which, particularly on the right, when these violent things occur, they're seen as outliers. There's a, there's a pattern of rhetoric that amplifies the need, uh, you know, either explicitly or implicitly for violent responses. But then, when violent responses actually occur, it is minimized or downplayed as being an individual actor who's behaving badly. Right. That has absolutely been the case here. I don't think a lot of Republicans, conservatives, would agree with your formulation that this uh, this person who acted uh, and tried to kill Nancy Pelosi apparently uh, was someone who was. Outside of the lens of, of mental illness problems, I think they would probably amplify some of the things he'd written, and so on and so forth. You know, but like a lot of these things aren't clear cut. January sixth was clear cut. Like we can talk about what happened in January sixth. Right. That's very very right. specific. And so was this a continuation of
1: January sixth, or an individual with mental health problems, or maybe some kind of intersection of the two? Because people with mental health problems ex- that extreme, well, they can attach to what's going on in the in the That's news right. or the culture or whatever. Lisa, I know you have to go in a minute. Um, Just looking at the battle to control the Senate, I I think we're looking at six states primarily that are in play, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin. You wrote up uh, the Pennsylvania race after the debate this week between Oz and Fetterman, and your headline was Fetterman's debate showing after his stroke raises Democratic anxieties in the Senate battle Give us your quick take on Pennsylvania, and then I know you got to run.
2: I think it's really tight. I think it could go either way. One interesting thing is we we were out um, in the field with a poll, uh, you know, the night before the debate, the night of the debate, and the night after the debate, and the calls uh, that were made, the responses we got on that night after the debate, we saw those numbers change a little bit, that a plurality of voters said that um, Fetterman was not healthy enough to do the job um though he still had a lead uh, over you know oz the republican uh candidate so you know we'll have to see how this how this how this how his health situation plays out Uh, in the next couple the next week or so um you know the thing with debates is like people's decision on them often happens in the days after it's the spin that really sets how people view the debates and how those viral clips are used by each side given the you know the small number of people who um who watch these debates so we'll have to see how it all works out but there are some indications that it could have an impact on his standing but Again, these, this is just a really, really tight race, just like a lot of these Senate races are. Our poll found in you know, several of them within the margin of error, and um, you know, it's really a jump ball here.
1: New York Times national political correspondent, Lisa Lehrer, no relation, and for some reason she spells her last name without an H. I'll never <laughs> understand that. But Lisa, thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me, even without
1: the age. Washington Post columnist Philip Bump. Thanks so much, Philip. Appreciate it a lot. You bet. Thanks, sir. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.